0: Good evening. It's great to see everyone here as we begin the study through the book of Psalms tonight. And it is definitely interesting and not surprise how the Holy Spirit always faithfully works because as we look at the passage that we're going to look at tonight in Psalm 1, it ties so closely to where we were in Sunday in Revelation 3 and it even ties closely to where we're going to be this Sunday. In the Gospel of John, and it's just all a resounding theme and reminder to focus on the Word of God. So Psalm 1, now before we look at the text of Psalm 1, we're going to lay that foundation and background for us as we go through the entire book of Psalms. And this is going to give us insights that we will return to over the next few months as we study and work through this book together. The first message I ever actually shared with this body was Psalm 1. uh, And at that time, we did go through some of the context and background. We're going to go a little bit deeper this time and dig a little bit deeper so that we will be ready as we do this study. So before we delve into everything, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time, Lord. Thank you for prayer. Thank you for singing unto you, Lord. And thank you for this time to come into your word, Lord. Father God, I just ask that you please help us all to put aside distractions to just be able to focus on you, focus on your word, and focus on what you would have for us tonight. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Psalms, when I shared that we were going to be doing this on Wednesday, some folks were quite excited and sharing, I love Psalms, I have never actually studied through the book, or some folks saying, I read the Psalms all the time. And what's beautiful is that as we go through this, each and every single one of us, my prayer is that God uses it to speak through us, because he does speak to us through his word. He speaks to us to bring conviction, repentance, renewal, and growth. Now when we look at the book of Psalms, this is a book That's a portrait of entering into God's holy sanctuary. It's a portrait that lets us see the way God meets his people in a special way. The book is direct. The book is intense. The book is intimate. And above all else, as God always is, the book is honest. This is a book of God and his people communing in worship. Now, this book, as we go through the Psalms, you'll see that it informs our intellect, and while it's doing that, it inspires our emotions to be pointed towards God. And that, in turn, directs our will to be towards Him, and that, in turn, invigorates our imagination towards eternity because it's all pointing to Him. It's a book that deepens our love for God as we understand who He is and we understand His heart for His people more and more. Now, I'm not knocking devotional books with what I'm going to say. I'm not knocking it, disclaimer made. But I will say the book of Psalms, that's your ultimate devotional. Right there. The book of Psalms, it's the ultimate prayer book. You don't need any prayer book written by men. Just go right to the book of Psalms. It is the ultimate hymnal for the people of God. Hymnal, yes. This book is a hymn book for the children of Israel and the early church. It's a book of poetry set to music. The Hebrew name and title of the book is Zephyr Talim, which actually means book of praises. Hence, the hymn book for the children of Israel. And as we study the Psalms, it's going to be useful for us to know a little bit about the poetry that's being used in this. The poetry found in this book, it's not going to be the typical rhyming poetry that we would look for in other places. The literary devices used are rhythm, repetition, contrast. Restatement and parallels. Now, of the literary devices used in the book of Psalms, two that we're going to see highlighted frequently are rhythms and parallelism, which is common in Hebrew poetry. Now, when I say rhythm, we're not talking about the number of accented or unaccented syllables as we would expect when we think about poetry ourselves. When we talk about rhythm, we're talking about tonal stresses or accents found on important words. Parallelism speaks to stating an idea within one line and occurring then in different ways and different areas. So the first line would state it, and then it's reinforced by various methods within the succeeding lines. Now, there's different types of parallelism that we're going to be seeing in this, so we're going to put on our uh, English literary scholar caps for a moment and get, get these just with us. So we have synonymous parallelism is when the second line of the psalm repeats the idea of the first line. And if you want an example of that, you can see that in Psalm 3, one. Lord, how they have increased me who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of him, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Antithetical parallelism is when the second line contains ideas opposite to the first line, so the second line that's used in that structure. So we're going to actually see that in the psalm that we're in tonight when verse 6 with verse 1, a blessing, and the last word, perish. Synthetic parallelism is when the second line adds to or further develops the first line of the text. And we'll see this tonight in the first two lines of our psalm because we'll see blessed is the man, and as it goes, the second line, it expands on what he does and doing by expanding on that first thought. Another type of parallelism we'll see is emblematic parallelism. And this is when the second line elevates the thought of the first line through other literary devices, such as similes or metaphors. And parallelism (laughs) parallelism is not just restricted, say that 10 times fast, to two lines. It can go through a strophe, it can go through a stanza. And you'll keep seeing it showing up as we go through so as we do our study through psalms i challenge you see where the different structures of parallelism are coming up see where other literary devices you might notice come up and it just points to how meticulously god puts together his word for us it just points to that who wrote the book of psalms it was written over hundreds of years by a variety of authors so there's many different authors and the collection of them coming together in one book most likely took place around the time of the book of Ezra actions taking place. 73 of the Psalms we know were written by David, one by Moses, two by Solomon, about 11 or 12 by the sons of Korah and Asaph, some by the sons of Heman, Ethan, Hezekiah. 39 of the Psalms have no author. And those 39 are orphanic Psalms. They're the orphans. We don't know who wrote them. Now the book itself, how many Psalms are there? 150 good everybody gets a gold star there's 150 psalms and it's divided into 5 subbooks 1 to 41 42 to 72 73 to 89 90 to 106 107 to 150 now each of these subbooks ends with a doxology So the first three, we see that doxology, and it ends with amen. The fourth, we have amen and hallelujah, and the fifth, we have hallelujah. The exact reasoning of the division, we're not 100% sure, but we do believe that it has something to do with the order of worship in the temple. Now, there's also something of interest to note with these five sub-books, and I've said this before, there's a correlation with the five sub-books to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, why do we have the Psalms? It's a hymn book. We have them to teach us to praise God. And within the Psalms, you see something special. The personal name of God is used, Yahweh. Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, capital L-O-R-D in English. When you see that in the Psalms. It's the personal name. And you're gonna see it happen in each Psalm at least twice. Now, that personal name reminds us There's a value to worship. It's intimate. It is personal. It also reminds us that worship songs are prayers unto God. So the Psalms would be used in private worship. The Psalms would also be used in public worship. The focus always God. The focus on God is seen within each of the 150 Psalms. Specifically, 16 of the Psalms are messianic, and point to the person and work of Jesus. We have lament Psalms, and in those they are written to cry out to God and ask for help. Notice that cry out is to God, not man, God. There's testimonial Psalms that tell of what God has done in the life of the psalmist. A great example of this is David in Psalm 32, after the repentance psalm that we see in Psalm 51. He tells of what God has done to make him new after the sin with Bathsheba. We have pilgrim psalms within this, which would be sung during the pilgrimage to the holy city, Jerusalem. Makes me wonder, what are we singing as we journey into eternity with our king? We have imprecatory psalms that ask for judgment, on wicked men. That's what they do. And you could say, whoa, why are are they going there? When we look at those, there's something to note and it reminds us what we saw in Revelation 3 this past weekend. God is the one who vindicates his righteous. We don't take it into our own hands. He is the one who does it. God is the just one. God is the judge. God is the one with all authority. God is the one who gets the wicked to seek him unto repentance. And for us, to praise him for his sovereignty. We have penitential psalms. They show the sorrow over sin. Psalm 51 is a great one where you see David pouring his heart for that sin. We have wisdom psalms. The wisdom psalms give us guidelines for godly people, guidelines for how to live for God. The psalm we're in tonight, Psalm 1, that is a wisdom psalm. We have historical psalms. These are ones that look back on God's dealings with the nation of Israel, his people. And that highlights something important for the believer today. We're in prayer, we're praying for Israel. We have to be concerned about the things of God's people. We have to be concerned about Israel. For the Gospel saves, Roman 1:16, the Jew first and then the Gentile. The Psalms show the depth of relationship God has with his people Israel. And then it also gives us the open door to see the depth of relationship we get with Christ. We're to be present and attentive to the things of his people Israel, present and attentive to the things for us, his church that we see prophetically. And the last type of psalm that we'll see are nature psalms. What do we think those do? They point to his creation. They point to the beauty and splendor made at his hands. Now notice Each one that we went through all points to God. The focus is God. And if these are songs of praise, it makes us realize our praise, the focus, needs to be God. So next time you're belt into K-Love in the car, don't just belt, think about the lyrics. Yeah, we're going to belt K-Love right now. No, but when you are belt into K-Love next time, think about those lyrics. And if a bystander heard, are you singing songs that sound like the next hit from Greece, the musical, or a pop love song, or is it actually a song about Jesus and to him? Because far too often in a me-me-me culture, which I think we can agree our culture is a little me-me-me right now, we take the focus over who it's supposed to be, him. He must increase. I must decrease. Through all these types of psalms, we see something vital also. Think of all the different categories we just had. God gives us a reason to sing in every aspect of life. And those songs are prayers. God gives us a reason to pray and worship him in every aspect of life. We talked about persecution tonight in prayer. There's a way to worship even through that. The Psalms are quoted hundreds of times in the New Testament. Jesus quotes them. The apostles quote them when they're building the church. They're everywhere. And they show the heart of those who believe. In the Psalms, we see the wrestle of faith and doubt. We see the victories and failures. We see the promises of all that is to come for those who believe and obey. And that's part of what we're going to see in the Psalm tonight. The Psalms also give us instruction on worship. Psalm 47.1 reminds us, to clap to him. Psalm 141.2 reminds us to lift our hands to him in worship. Psalm 95.6 reminds us to bow to him. What's your heart posture when you go before him? Psalm 134.1 reminds us to stand for him. And Psalm 47.1 reminds us to shout to him. All of this, this book that we're about to delve into, reminds us Our life is a worship song unto our king. How we live our life is a worship song unto him. These psalms give us strength. They comfort us because we learn more about God and we see the depth of how he loves us. These lyrics inspired by the Holy Spirit show us how to live and how to praise our king. So with that, we're going to dig into Psalm 1 which could be called the prologue, the intro, the bridge to the book of Psalms, because this is the first dive that we get in this book. And we did our background setup, and it's the Lord now, he does his intro saying, hey, before you go through all these Psalms, get something really simple. There's two ways. One way, that's a blessing. One way, that's destructive. That's it. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The title of tonight's lesson is Tend Your Soil. And as we go through these six verses, I charge you to prayerfully ponder how God needs you to tend the soil Of your heart, tend the soil of your mind, tend the soil of your soul that are all ultimately His. Now, Psalm 1 reminds us of the duality of the reality of the Christian life. There's a way of blessing, there's a way of destruction. And we see this idea because there's the man who's going God's way, there's the man who's going His way throughout Scripture. We have the first Adam, and then we have the second Adam, Christ. We have Cain and Abel. We have Ishmael and Isaac, we have Esau and Jacob, we have David and Saul, and as we look towards the end, we have Christ and Antichrist. Now, this psalm of wisdom focuses on one thing, the word of God, the word of God. There are blessings for those who obey and meditate on his word. Side note, those blessings aren't a new car or name it and claim it or get whatever you want but we'll see what those blessings are. Verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now blessed, that word there, that original word is happy. And it's in the plural. So you could say, oh, the happinesses or oh, the blessednesses. That's what starts this Psalm. And we would expect to then see, okay, the blessed man, what does he do? And that's what you would want to think. If we just say, do you want to learn how to be blessed by God? People go, what do I have to do? How do I do this? What, what do I need to do to get that? But God doesn't start with what to do. He starts with what not to do. Because he's our heavenly father who gives us boundaries to live within. And we need those boundaries. He loves us so much that he gives boundaries. This entire book that we have in our hands is a book of loving boundaries for us to obey and to stay in his will. But our flesh, we want to do. I want to know I'm doing something to to control this, to make it. Nope. He reminds us here, just focus on how I say to live. Blessed is the man, one, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. This means the advice given by those not anchored in the word of God isn't taken. It can seem practical, the advice that that is given in that moment, the words that are said, hey, why don't you do that like that? But for the blessed man, they know if it's not anchored in the word of God, no dice, not going there. Again, the anchor is the word of God, nothing else. And I'll do my PSA in context. Take the word of God in context, not just snatched out, but in context. Nor stands in the path of sinners. They do not stand in the path of sinners. They don't hear the advice, take it, and then begin to make it habit. That's what happens. But they don't do that. Because when they're doing that, those that stand, those that are the sinners on that path, they willfully violate God's commands. So they're not going to walk in that and they're not going to stand. And last, they do not sit in the seat of the scornful. The scornful, people who bash Christians, people who bash the people of God, people who teach others to do the same, people who celebrate doing that and having fun about it. That is not where they're going to find themselves. And do you see what we get there? Walk, stand, sit. It's a slope. Sin is a progression. If you look at David, we mention him with his prayer of repentance. It's a progression. He decides not to go with the gents. He stays back. Then he sees. Now he sees and he takes that action. Then he makes love with her. Now she's pregnant. Now he has to set a murder. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It is a progression. And we receive in this psalm a reminder of that progression. Our hearts are an open field with soil that needs to be cultivated. Who do you let tend the soil of your heart? If we turn right now to Romans 1, this is a good example of seeing concretely how this, this trajectory goes. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Creation. Look outside. We see that there's a creator. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, walking in their own way. 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So they know there's God and they see there's a God. We're gonna ignore this God. We're gonna start doing our own thing. Now we're gonna sit in our own thing. Now we're gonna anchor on our own thing and we're gonna create our own things to worship. It's a progression that goes and the blessed man doesn't go there. And there's results of it. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. God gave them over. You just keep saying no, 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 no? Okay. Verse 29 being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil minders, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they're aware, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's why in this psalm we see this progression and he says the blessed man doesn't get stuck in that. Because if you're walking and if you stand and if you sit, you're stuck. You don't want to get stuck in the progression. And we see those who are in that, the ungodly, what do they do? They approve of those who practice them. It's okay, come on, do it. Doesn't matter what they say, do it. Another text that this we can see this alluded to is the text that was given to me as a charge on the ordination day, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. "'I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, "'who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom,' Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The blessed man is not moved by the whims of this world. The blessed man is not going to say, okay, I'm anchored in the Word of God. I'm going to leave the Word of God because I don't actually like what this says or God, you know, you're telling me I have to just stick with the Word. I want to have my own experience with God so I'm going to put the Word aside so I can create my own experience. No, the blessed man stays rooted in the Word and the Word alone and is not anchored on anything but the Word of God. Think back to Sunday, the church of Philadelphia. What did they do? They kept his word and they did not deny his name. It's a group of people that are the blessed man walking in the word of God. And that's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us, do not be conformed to the world, but renew your mind. How do you renew the word? How do we do this? Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed man has delight in the word of God. Take stock. Ask yourself right now, what do you delight in? What do you enjoy to do? What do you relish doing? That's what it should be about going into the word of God. Notice it doesn't say he burdens going to the word. He has a chore of reading the word. It's a delight. It's a joy. When we think of delight, this is something excitedly chosen. Is that you in the word? Further, he delights in it and he meditates on it. The law of the L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D right there, is the full counsel of the word of God. It's a personal, intimate communion with God's word. It's an intimate communion with God through his word. God uses his word to speak to us. How does he do that? We read it, we get conviction. We realize, okay, there's things that I need to do and change. We read it and we're having a really hard time, but we read it and we're encouraged by the promises that we see on that page. Does it mean that everything's picture perfect? Does it mean that suddenly we can say it's all changed? But we are encouraged. And how else? We have the hope of what is to come. Think to Sunday, what did we see? We're going to see Jesus face to face. Come on. What more hope do we need? The blessed man has ears turned off from the world. And his whole being is turned to the word of God. It's turned to that personal relationship. And the meditation on the word, it's not the home empty myself. That's not what we're talking about. That meditation in the Jewish culture, they would in a low tone mutter the scriptures as they're reading and as they're praying over them. That's what that is. Not knocking Bible reading plans, but are you more concerned about checking off that you read all the chapters you were supposed to that day? Or are you actually letting the Holy Spirit guide your reading that you meditate on the word? that you chew his word, that you commune with God? Are you slowing down to digest the word of God? Do you read the verse and just take it, don't think about context, and make it say what you want it to say in that moment so you can apply it and say, this is what I'm being told? Or do you just ponder before him and let it speak as the truth and let it minister as he leads it to minister To whatever's going on as he reminds you he's the same yesterday today forever as he reminds you I'm in control and sometimes that's all you're gonna get I am and you just stay there and we take comfort in that because the great I am is our king he's the good shepherd the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want can you stop right there and be filled enough Matthew 4 4. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4 4. That's the part where we see the enemy right attacking our Savior and saying, Hey, let's go. I'm going to give you all the things that you would want pride of life, lust. I'm going to put all of it in front of you. What does Jesus use? The Word. And as he's using the Word, what does he make it clear? that that's what we live off of. Want this more than food, want this more than sleep, want this more than anything else. And notice, it's the word, not our emotions, not our whims, not our fancies, just the word. A question we have to sometimes check as you tend your soil, is the word of God enough for you? Do you have to add to it? Do you have to take away from it? Tend your soil. What do you delight in? Is your delight contrived sensations and experiences of the word of God? Is your delight self or him? Is your delight man's approval or God's? Part of the issue I believe in the greater church is we're so stuck trying to create experiences. We're trying to create a sensation for people so that when you come through the door, you feel like you met God and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to worry about this word. It's just about you feeling like you had an experience and you heard personally and you, 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 you. you. This is about him. This is about God. We can't make it a me, 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 me. His word, his spirit, his way. It's got to be about God. When we actually allow ourselves to return and just anchor on the word, you start to fade away. Break my heart for what breaks yours, Lord. You start to care about things you might not even realize you would care about because you want to see your will be done, Lord. You want to see the Lord's will be done. The way we treat our Bible The regard that we have for it is really the same way we treat Christ because it's his precious word. So if you regard this as a genie lamp, you're just saying, Jesus, you're my genie lamp. No, that's not what it is. That's not what the founding of this church was about at all. And that's not what it can ever be because it's just about the word. Who's your right hand man? I charge you, tend your soil, make it his word. Moses to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. How often do we delight in the word day and night, AKA all the time. Does that mean I need to walk around my house all day long? No, but let the word be what you're soaking in, you're basking in, you're thinking about, you're praying on, whatever you read in the morning, whatever you read in the evening, chew on it. Tend your soil, move your heart to think of his word more than the world. And this is where we really do, I pray, we tend the soil and examine your relationship with social media and technology. Do you spend more time listening to others talk about God Reading devotionals, reading commentaries, reading everything else but the Word of God. Because in our culture, honestly, you can find whatever you want to go with whatever opinion you're trying to say. It's very easy. You can find anybody to justify what you want. But what about the Word? Are you letting that be the anchor? Are you standing on His promises? Is that enough? Verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. Now for these folks in the desert, hearing about this tree growing by the rivers of water would mean something because that 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 root has to be there. That would impact them to know that you need to be close to the center, the source that gives life. The blessed man is spiritually healthy and fruitful because they're planted by the rivers of water. This means the root system underground is taken care of and hydrated. The godly person is alive, beautiful, fruitful, useful, and enduring for God. Why? Their hidden root system is watered and nourished by the word of God. Tend your soil. Everyone here, what's your hidden root system like? We see your roots, what are your roots? If I dig up the dirt, what am I gonna find? What's your root system? In John 15, he tells us he's the vine, we are the branches, abide in him. That's being immersed in the word. Only you and God know what your root system looks like. But we do know in Ephesians 5:26, men are told to wash their wives with the water of the word. Do you see it's all about the anchor of the word of God? You wanna be a man of God? Submit to his word, live in his word, pour his word into his daughter, pour his word into the children that you have with his daughter. Mutual submission happens, bam, thriving. Is your root system watered by emotion? Is your root system watered by self? Is your root system watered by preachers and people that you listen to because they have so many followers and they're so cool? Or is your root system like the Church of Philadelphia? Keep his word, don't deny his name. Not about how many followers they have, but about the Alpha and Omega. And then what happens? Bears fruit in its season. Now, anybody, anybody listening who believes in prosperity gospel, I want to say, this is not that type of fruit. What we're talking about here, not the name and claim it world, we're talking about bearing fruit for the Lord that he ordains in his timing. And what is The fruit. Galatians 5, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The fruit is godly character being built within us. The fruit is moving closer to the mind of Christ that Paul tells us to strive to have while he's imprisoned in the ground, writing to the church of Philippi. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient To the point of death, even the death of the cross. The fruit that one bears, that is the blessed man, is character after God's glory. That is the fruit. And we can't be nourished and grow without our root system rooted in Christ and his spiritual power alone. His word, his spirit His way. That's a phrase you're going to keep hearing me say because it's pounded on my head right now. And we have to ponder that as a body. As we continue to strive to do the work that this church has done for the last 20 years, as we seek to move forward, as we seek His guidance on moving forward, we must be rooted and anchored in His Word, His Spirit, His way. Our root system has to be in the Word of God alone. Why? We wither when our root system's messy. Tend your soil. Get the weeds of bad habits out. Get the pesticides of the world. Go au naturel. Get chickens. Go au naturel. Get the pesticides out. Tend the soil. Focus on him. Look at that first verse. Don't walk in the counsel of the Galilee. Don't stand in the path of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Because there's that way. The truth. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates Day and night, we've got the way, the truth is going in the word and the life. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. It doesn't mean that you're gonna make a million dollars, but it does mean no matter what you go through, God will work it for the good. It does mean if you obey the Lord and your obedience leads to your death, he's gonna work it for the good. That's what that means. That's what that prosper is, because we prosper unto eternity with Jesus. What more do you need? Is that not enough? Eternity with Him. It's building the house on the rock of salvation. Takes the storm. Because the house built on the sand, what does it say in Matthew 7:27? Great was its fall. Because there's no stability, no root system. The promise. Now the flip side, what about the ungodly? Verse four, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly are chaff, rootless, blown about, destined for fire. It's the shell around the grain that is used to make the wheat. In the Vulgate and the Septuagint, The translation there is not so the ungodly, not so. We get a powerful double negative there that says they are nowhere near the promises that we just saw before this. And we see that. We see when we looked at the example in Romans, we see that slide that goes down and we just saw it in June in our culture. If we look at what's going on, when we look at 2 Timothy, people making their own ways to do things and being deceived into instability. Look at our culture. Look at the mental health turmoil, the chaos, all of this. God's removed, everything falls apart. A quote I saw by Ronald Reagan that, I was like, yeah, I'll take it. If we ever forget that we're one nation under God, and I didn't know that I was gonna wear this when I had that, then we will be a nation gone under. Look at us. But the door has been opened to us to evangelize, to minister, to serve. Because there's too many with false stability, driven, tossed to and fro. And on judgment day, yeah, they might be standing, but guess what? Their case isn't gonna be acquitted and they just have eternal doom. Sinners in the congregation, they're not gonna be able to be there. And it also causes us, Jesus, I think, takes that further to do a pulse check Is that heart truly regenerated? Are you truly his? Or is it going to be, I never knew you? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Tend your soil. Check your root system. Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill, our hearts need to break for what breaks our saviors. We have to realize, and we can't just idly sit by while people are dying unto eternity, Away from him. Let the word of God be the center. As we let the word of God be the center, his spirit brings conviction. Then we live in his way, and his way is to be about sharing the gospel that people come to know him, that people come to have relationship with him, that people come to commune with him. See, the door is open. May our hearts break for what breaks his. May we vibrantly walk through that door And may we see those that are walking, standing, and sitting on the slope of sin and say, hey, let's talk. Let me give you the word of God. Let me give you that you never thirst again. Let me give you the bread of life. Let me give you the way, the truth, and the life. And then let the word of God do what it does as the double-edged sword. Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The know that is used there is pointing to choosing personally, capital L-O-R-D, intimate and personal relationship with Yahweh. God knows our way when we allow him to be the guide. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God knows our way because the way isn't abstract things that we make it. The way is the race to eternity. That's the way we're going. We're on a race to eternity. It will not all be easy. All the promises in this are true. We're promised trials. Let's hear some noise for the trials. We're promised to them, but they refine us. They draw us closer to him. They build that character that we looked at, that we bear the fruit of the spirit. For the ungodly, they shall perish. We saw Sunday, the names that are not in the book of life cast into the fire. We spoke earlier about the reality of the duality, two ways, eternity with him or eternity without him. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, ponder these verses, tend the soil of your heart, transplant your roots to the soil of Christ and know him as your firm foundation. And saints, if you know Jesus, I ask you, tend your soil. Is the word of God the anchor it should be in your life? What about in your home? What about in your families? Is there anything in your soil that you need to uproot? Most of the folks who come here Wednesday nights, we know you're faithful to the word, you're faithful to living to him. Question though, are you encouraging your brothers and sisters in the Lord to be faithful to his word and to be faithful to the study of the word? When you gather with your brothers and sisters from this fellowship, Is the word of God an abstract thing that doesn't really get talked about? Or is it at the center? Are you sharing what you're learning from scripture? Not sharing what you're just, I have this thing on my own that I want to tell you about. The word of God. What are we sharing that the Lord is showing? The Lord is showing me this and teaching me this through what I just read. Read this. Learn more about the Lord. That's what it's about. That's what it means to keep the word at the center. And then when you're together, are you praying for the souls that may perish? Are you thinking of those that his heart is broken for? Do you meditate day and night on his word? It's a mindset shift where we're focused eternally and we live his word, his spirit, his way. And his way of blessing is with him at the center. And that blessing is the willpower to obey his word. That he refines you to have the character he needs. The way of the ungodly is captive in pleasure, pride, unbelief, profanity, persecuting others, self-deception, so much more. Yet, if we're not careful, our soil gets remnants of that. Tend your soil. Now next week we go on to Psalm 2. But before we get there, homework, meditate on Psalm 1 this upcoming week. First assignment, seek where the Lord needs you to adjust in your relationship with his word and him. And as you do that, allow him to bring in conviction that the fruit that he needs for you can be born. I'm not telling you to seek the word for what you want it to say. Seek the word for what it says. Second, pray and meditate on who you need to pray that they would turn, walk away from the walk, stand, sit, and kneel and pray to the savior for salvation. And three, meditate on his word. Take whatever you're studying in your own time, slow down on it and chew on it. Meditate on it day and night, check your root system, anchor with it, and let God speak to you through his word. And that speaking is going to be building your character for his glory. That speaking is going to be building a desire to read more of this, to know him, to know the great I am. He gives us access to that, and it's right here. And then it's the equipping to be his hands and feet. And that's what we all need to do so that we can be like the faithful church of Philadelphia. Because that's the rooting we're founded on, and that's the way we've got to keep going. That we keep his word. And we don't deny his name. And it's all right there. Blessed is the man. There's things we don't do, and there's things we do do. And it's all anchored in the Word of God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the salve that your Word is for our souls, Lord. Thank you that you give it as an anchor. Thank you, that you give it as a lamp and a light, Lord God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help each and every single one of us to tend the soil of our hearts, souls, and mind, Lord. That we would think and ponder and seek you on our relationship with your word, Lord. Do we take your word as you ordain? Do we dwell with you? Do we chew on your word? Do we pray your word? How do we worship you, Lord? Father, search our hearts, Lord that we draw closer unto you to build the character within us for your glory that you need, to be your hands and feet, Lord God, and to live with an eternal perspective that joyfully has us running that race towards you, Lord, forever. And Heavenly Father, break our hearts for what does break yours, Lord. And Father, just help us to minister to those who do not know you when we're out on our own and when we're together as a church, Lord. That we would anchor in you, anchor in your truth, and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good night.